and welcome back to a proper edition of the Ask podcast today. I think this is episode eight. I'm starting to lose count now. Um, but we hope you will be attaining some secret knowledge with us and our fantastic guests and panellists today who I'll introduce in a moment. Just to remind you, I am Mrs Jenny Summers, Deputy Head of English and Grammar. Uh, oh, that's good. <laughs> English you and are. Grammar. I'm t- I see. I see <laughs> the subject is mainly, mainly Grammar. But it's We're going to change that job title. That's interesting. <laughs> oh. We're not editing that out. That's staying in. <laughs> <laughs> That's staying right in. Okay, fine. I'm Deputy Head of English and Drama at John Hampton <laughs> Grammar School. Uh, last time I checked, and hopefully <laughs> if I'm not going to be fired after this podcast. Um, and I'm really excited for this episode today because the subject is not in my area, my comfort zone necessarily. Mm. So I'm going to learn Ooh. lots, I am sure. And this is my lovely colleague. I am Mark Till. I am the Head of English and Grammar. Uh, I oversee all the grammar. Um, This is going to be a great one. We've been trying for a number of weeks, haven't we, to have a science colleague. Mm. And we have an actual science. We've trapped one in the room, like when they do those experiments where they try and trap an electron. I feel like we're tracking down scientists is that difficult. And we've finally managed to get one from the wild. And uh, this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be fantastic. And we'll do another clue for clue hunters. Ooh. Another big prize. We've only had one clue, and there will be another clue, but it will be dropped in at some at some random point. Absolutely not right at the end. When not right at the end if we forget again. Possibly. <laughs> Good. And we've got some lovely brand new panelists this week as well, including Mr. Miles Kingman, whose birthday it is today. Happy it birthday, is. sir! Tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm an old boy from John Hampton, currently doing the classroom assistance role. I'm um, a bit of a COVID catch up, and then next year I'm doing my maths PGCE. Very exciting, joining the ranks of the teachers. Joining the dark side, indeed. Oh, dark side. <laughs> Depending on your outlook. Well, yes, absolutely. And we also have Suresh, who I've dragged in from my form S3, the best form, I'm sure you will all agree. Suresh, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Suresh, uh, A-level student taking maths, further maths, physics and computer science. So I do do a bit of science, but it's not chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) He's getting his disclaimers in early. And finally, we also have... Uh, thank you, Mr. Summers. Uh, well, uh, I study uh, chemistry, biology, and math, so hopefully that will give me uh, some mild understanding of the subject <laughs> we're going to talk about today. I like the fact we're all couching it. We're getting in our excuses early. We're terrified because we've just the intellect that is our guest today, our Dr. Anthony Bullard, head of science, and, and he's formerly even been head of maths too. He could be head of anything if he fancied it. You know, he's a very esteemed guest. And, and he's got some really interesting things to talk to us about today, about uh, about being a scientist, about being a research scientist, about, be, you know, training to become a scientist, and perhaps we might even pop some literature in um, at the end if we have time. You never know. Um, so why that topic, sir? Why did this topic tickle your fancy, first of all? Well, you asked me to do something, and I was trying to think of something that might be interesting to both uh, parents and pupils uh, alike. And we do a lot of science here, and um, in terms of a lot of pupils who do science and go on to do scientific careers and thereafter. But what we don't really do is what it is to be a professional research scientist. Mm. Um, And it isn't quite what the glamorous view that most people have of it. So I thought, particularly as a lot of the lower six are used to me ranting at them about some of the things that I don't like about the curriculum (laughs) and about the thought process and training to become a scientist, I thought it might be kind of interesting to get a glimpse uh, for pupils and and even parents about what it is day-to-day like being a scientist, what are the skill sets you need, what are the thought processes you go through, and what are the deep frustrations and unglamorous bits that you have to go through. 
to be a research fun. scientist. Excellent. I was just wondering, before we get into all that, what drew you into a life of science in the first place? Oh, I, as a sixth form tutor, this is going to be really bad because I keep saying, oh, you don't need to know what you're doing by the age <laughs> of 16. Don't worry, it'll come to you. It's really normal. I hate to say it, but I used to watch Horizon, which was a, a documentary series back in the back in the day in BBC Two. And I used to see medical research and I think, yeah, I'd like to do that. So I, sadly, I've always wanted to do research science and particularly related to the medical field. That was, had a vocation for it. And what was your, what was your story then? What did you, how did you get from that? What did you go into first? Give us a sense of your journey. You so, don't, you don't have to be too personal. But <laughs> so, so um, yeah, I mean, I went to, I went to um, Surrey University to do molecular biology. And I chose molecular biology because I kept on asking the question, why? And if you're in biology, and biology is my field, you say, why does an animal behave like it does? Well, then you get down to the cell level. Why does a cell behave like it does? We'll get into subcellular, and, all that. and then you get down to the genetic code and the interactions, and you keep on asking, but why, but why, but why? And that leads you to molecular biology, which is you know the chemical interactions and machinery of what's happening within the cell. And I chose Surrey because I had an industrial placement. I mentioned this to a lot of my tutees. So I felt my, my sister had gone there, and she'd had a really great experience. And I felt that um, even, you know, whenever era you look at, having a year's in work and industry before you graduate actually on your CV puts you at a much better advantage compared to people who leave. Plus the fact it's, um you actually earn genuine money. It's not a huge amount of money, but it feels like a lot of money when you're that student. So I did that, and then um, I was offered some jobs. I was coming out. I didn't have to look too hard. I was offered some jobs, and I came out because of my year in industry. And I worked in the pharmaceutical sector for a short while thereafter, but it was pretty unsatisfying. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it particularly very much, because I felt I was locked into a field that wasn't really mine. I was uh, plowing a furrow that wasn't one that I wanted to go in. So I did a masters, masters in molecular medicine at UCL which was the best year in education I ever had. It was just fascinating. They were bringing in experts from all over the world because the reach of UCL. And you were literally having people lecture to you that wrote all the papers and you could question them. And I was that annoying person that <laughs> kept on asking questions and everyone else wanted to go to lunch because I was just having such a great time. And I got so much out of it. How to write scientifically. No one had taught me mm. how to write scientifically and they don't in the education sector. And I really struggled in essay writing, but thereafter I didn't. Mm. And then from that, um, the last term is meant to be doing a dissertation. And they pop you into a field uh, at UCR. And I was meant to be doing about genetic mutations in deafness. And I'd agreed it all and discussed it with the, the lecturer and got on really well with her. And then this job came up uh, in the field of cardiac research. And they said, well, you could either be earning nothing doing your deafness or you could be earning money and doing your research with this cardiac group. And I thought it was quite interesting, popped along and then ended up doing my research dissertation with them and that led into a PhD. So that's my story. Oh, great yeah. story. Now our panellists get to be those annoying people who ask those questions. <laughs> um, I think my first question is, uh, why molecular biology? Why not just biology? Because when, when I was studying, sorry, going to choose my uh, mm -hmm. degree, I was looking at physics and I was wanting particle physics or and quantum physics, but my teachers were pushing me away from a more specific point. Do you think that may have held you back? Do you regret doing something more specific so early? Not at all. Um, because I went to Surrey, and it's, I think it's, it's if you look at the rankings for Surrey, Surrey nearly always comes out top for mm. employability at the end. Okay. That's partly the industrial placement, but it's partly the flexibility of the course, which I think lots of other universities now copy, which is the modular system. So you can do, and the first year, 
is pretty biochemistry, which yeah. is a pretty general course. So six of the modules are biochemistry and all the nutritionists do, all the microbiologists do, yeah. lots of different courses do those six modules. So if you want to, you can just choose different modules and plot a different pathway. But why I chose molecular biology and what I tell my pupils um, uh, in my tutees is, I just literally read the course code, literally read the prospectus, and you feel, I mean, you've got an intellectual interaction with your course, and you think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, I've got a career out of that. But there's also an emotional interaction mm. with it, where you feel your blood pressure slightly rising yeah. when you read those course codes. And I think that's what, when your head and heart say the right same thing, that's when you go for it, I think. So, yeah, uh, it was partly emotional, partly intellectual, and also the question, but why, but why, but mm. why? And that leads you to molecular biology. And when they marry up, that's kind of just the right decision yes. at that point, isn't it? I, I, I've never regretted it. And particularly at Surrey, where I could do all sorts of things in my final year. I did a module in forensic, to forensic toxicology, for example. Oh, nice. Um, nice. And all sorts of things. Pharmacokinetics and all sorts of interesting things, which I wasn't expecting to do to begin with. No. Couldn't even tell you what those things are. <laughs> I'm going to use I won't use jargon. Pharmacokinetics is the distribution, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion of drugs through the body. Okay, I just like that. It's particularly relevant to the pharmaceutical industry. What do drugs do? How do you take drugs in? How do they interact with your body? And how do you excrete them? Mm, Teachers wow. and coffee. That's all I'm thinking. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. My head went to the PSD lesson I've just had, which was all about whether we should legalize cannabis or not, which partly talked about Me the metabolism of that yeah. on, the, on the body and so yeah. on. So, yeah, very interesting. You can't tell because this is a recording, but they're all looking at me. <laughs> 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 well, I'm not so sure. Let's start with a general question. What what annoys you most about? Um, current reporting of science in the media? Mm, yeah, good question. <sighs> Do you know what frustrates me the most? Um, we live in this world, and, I, and we talk a lot about it in my tutor group, um, in this world where we all live in our own bubbles and everyone is their own echo chamber. And um, it's, it's kind of the way the population's gone where it used to be the Guardian readers would have a certain view in the Times mm. readers, and now it's just certain people read certain follow certain people on Twitter. What frustrates me the most is when scientists do it and they should know better because they should follow the facts, but they choose facts to suit their purpose. And then, and then they use the sort of the cover but I'm a scientist. Yeah, you are a scientist. You should be choosing facts across the range and getting a broader view. And I find that frustrating when they don't. I, I don't find it frustrating when journalists do it because that's their job, mm -hmm. really. They, they, they peddle a particular view and they follow it and it, that's their role. I find it frustrating when scientists do it as well. Going back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, do you think there's limited freedom in the industry? Say you were doing your dissertation on deafness, but was offered a job in a course you say didn't want to do. Do you, do you think you're being forced to do it? Oh, there's a couple of things here, I think. Uh, if you look at the world of research, you can... I mean, funding is hugely difficult in research. You can not You can have the best uh, idea in the world. It leads to a Nobel Prize, but if no one will pay for you to do it, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. So funding is really, really difficult. And actually, um, the successful professors are the ones, those who bring in the money. Unfortunately, my professor, where I was, was very good at bringing in money, so we never had a problem getting the funding that we wanted. So one source of funding is pharmaceutical industry. So, but of course, the pharmaceutical industry want you to go down a particular direction. Um, so that's fine, but so you have a bit of limited freedom if you follow the pharmaceutical industry funding. That, that was my experience with the colleagues that I had who attracted certain funding. Um, and of course, they've got their their research which they want to patent, so you can't necessarily publish it. So that's quite tricky. 
whereas working when I was doing my research in um, a university at UCL, you have you have almost total freedom. I could go to my professor like I've followed this line, please, and he'd fund it. But I'd have to, you know, I'd have to justify it. Say, look, this is the this is the reasoning. Looking at these papers, I reckon this might be the direction I want to go down. And by and large, if I had a sound reason, we'd follow it. So there's a lot more freedom in the university sector. Is that the question you're asking? Yeah, it is the question. <laughs> <laughs> That's always helpful. Yeah. Back to you, Sam. Um, okay, maybe going back towards the education part. You talked about being very frustrated with kind of what you teach now, and um, and maybe how that might limit you in terms of going into this kind of scientific uh, job. I think our ideas kind of marry up of my feedback from my A-levels were the idea of science being part of a wider scientific community was almost lost on me. The idea of reading journals and, and peer review and that idea of a, of a wider sort of working group was lost on me. It was very much focused on learning core content, which is part of it, but that actual, maybe the softer skills behind that were almost lost. Yeah, I mean, there's that. I mean, I'm not... I'm not too critical of the courses. I mean, they teach important stuff, the A-level yeah. courses, chemistry, biology, physics. I think some of the frustration we find as teachers and the things that I rant about are what's been taken away is the concept of cross-disciplinary mm. research. Mm. So when you go into research, you've really got to look at the world around you with a really broad view. If you're looking at it from a, one particular angle, you're really cutting out lots of, lots of ways of solving a problem. So what's happened with the, the A-level courses so I take chemistry, which is the central science. That's the, how it's branded. It's the central science. And um, there used to be little bits of physics in there. Crossover, you can see a little bit of physics. Mm -hmm. So you can see the interaction between physics and chemistry, and you have the mathematical basis of chemistry. And then also you can see how the organic chemistry, the biological end, leads into, say, the structure of hemoglobin and, and why blood is the colour that it is and that kind of stuff. All been taken away. Now, I understand why because they want to not have somebody get double jeopardy where they learn one thing and they get double reward for it on two different A-levels. But it's taken away the concept that there's lots of different ways to look at things and actually science is just the way that we look at the world around us, the world around us and actually subdividing it into chemistry, biology, physics and whatever other science you want to do is a way of us being able to compartmentalise it so we can chunk it down so it's actually manageable. But mm. we should be, once you get to research level, you should be able to look at it in the, with a really broad spectrum. And by having been trained in this really narrow thought process, it doesn't help when you get to the world of research where you drop off at the end and there's no help, honestly. There's no help. There's no manual. There's no scheme of work. There's no method to teach you anything. And if you're looking at things from your narrow perspective that you've been trained in, I think it makes it harder. So that's, that's the frustration I have. Mm. Thank you for feeding in so nicely to the literal theme underlying our podcast, which is about fostering cross-disciplinary and cross-subject yeah. discussions. Yeah. So that's uh, very appropriate, I think. Should we, because uh, we, we've dotted about in some very interesting directions and we've we've steered away slightly from the life of uh, a, a, a uh, what's the researcher. word that I'm looking for? Researcher, that's the word. <laughs> it's not that I'm an English teacher and I need to know words or anything. It's absolutely fine. Um, do you want to tell us about maybe a typical day in the life? I of think it works in weeks. Okay. I think well, if we give you a typical then. week. Um, so, um, as mentioning to Miles earlier, there's no manual for anything. All you've got are research papers where you look at methods and think, and you look at the methods that other research groups are doing around the world and you try and replicate them or adapt them and everything else like this. So really, you've got to manage yourself. Obviously, you've got the support of senior colleagues and your professors and postdoctoral scientists that will help you along. But really, you're in your own world. 
So a typical week would be you spend time reading papers. So the first thing I did when I sat down and started my PhD was I had this big folder of papers, literally the bang as it hits your desk. <laughs> right, read that lot and then we'll talk, <laughs> is what the professor said. And then, um, so you're basically trying to plan out your week in terms of the research and the practicals that you would like to do. And one of the difficulties is, is that the practical lengths may not necessarily match your working day. So, for example, one of the practicals I was doing was looking at heart patients and uh, extracting um, what's known as atrial trabeculae, which is uh, it's an offcut when you do a heart bypass. And we're using that offcut with the consent of the patient, obviously, that was all done correctly, um, to actually look at um, how they interacted and what uh, treatments they undergo. So that day would start at 5 a.m. and it would end with using a very fancy piece of kit known as a confocal laser which basically fired at a particular uh, frequency and we could visualise and image the cells and that would finish at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. So, and that's the time length it is. That is the way that it is. You can't change that because that's how long it takes. Fortunately, I was working with a, a very good surgeon friend colleague of mine and one of us would take the early shift and she would take the late and vice versa. Mm. So we take it in shifts, sort of meet halfway between the two and then discuss it. So you're planning out your week and what experiments need to do. You normally have start the week with a research meeting. We used to start the week with a research meeting at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning, uh, which doesn't sound early, but in London, those of you who've lived in mm. London, 8 to get to central London by 8 a.m. is pretty tricky. So you start that by presenting your research from the previous week. And every single researcher would present their research and it would be open to scrutiny to everyone else in the group. Is it significant? What's happened here? Have you tried? And it, and it actually was pretty brutal. Mm. And I th get the impression, speaking to friends of mine who are also research scientists, that it was a pretty brutal process as well. And you get to, the risk is you get to doubt yourself quite a lot and you're under scrutiny quite a lot and it, you have to be quite resilient and, and push through with confidence. Mm. So someone who was starting a PhD just as I was finishing saying, what's the most important skill or attribute you need to have as a research mm. scientist? They expect you to say something about intelligence, but no, it's just plain resilience and mm. pushing through. That is the biggest and most important quality. But probably good to know early if you've made a mistake Absolutely. or if your experiment hasn't been robust. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I guess yeah. you find out fairly quickly if you've yeah. got a good team. Absolutely. Um, but because it's all brand new, you're on the cutting edge, there's no manual, most of your experiments don't work. So most of your experiments, I mean, um, someone said to me when I was starting my PhD, well, only 25% of your experiments work. And I was chatting to Dr. Wade this morning, she goes, yeah, that's ambitious. 25% <laughs> is a good week if your experiments work. So yeah, you get don't get a data for quite a long time. So you're sat there in your research meetings for quite a long time with nothing to show for it. So it's pretty tough. And you just have to wait until you hit that mother load of, of data and then suddenly you start moving forward. So your week starts on a Monday with the research meeting. And the idea with that is is they criticise your work, but also provides a new direction about where you're going to go uh, that week. And then you'll sit and you'll plan out your experimentation for that week and you'll push through and you'll plan Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. On Thursday, we used to have a journal club Thursday morning where we take it in turns. Uh, one person would present all the scientific papers that have been published that week that were relevant to us mm. and they'd have to critically analyze and say well this is similar to what we're doing we disagree with that or this is quite interesting they use a different concentration buffer or whatever else it is so you have that discussion point that feeds into hopefully the research meeting of the following week and then friday was results day so you do all your data and you do all your experimentation sort of almost with your eyes closed oh god i hope it's going to be all right mm. and it gets to friday and you collate all your data and then you see whether you've actually got anything that was worthwhile that week read it and you try and sort of pretty it up ready for the monday research meeting the following week so that's a typical week really mm. um where you get into that rhythm 
and somewhere along the time I'd have along the line in that week I'd have a one-to-one -one meeting with the professor where it wasn't open to scrutiny but it was still pretty pretty tough business mm -hmm. you know you've got you Although you're in the university and you think of um, it's all nice and friendly, you've got to produce results. Because if you don't produce results, we can't publish papers. If we can't publish papers, we can't attract funding. Research group disappears. It is it is a results business. You do have to produce. So it's it gets pretty tough on you. Um, well, but presumably, um, even if you do an experiment that don't work, that is useful because you know that this thing doesn't work. Um, I, I don't remember the, the thing, but I was reading earlier, like... Um, a, f a fake scientist make, making some bogus claims, and that actually, uh, somebody thirty years before had proved have had shown that that was wrong, but he hadn't published the results because nobody cares about things that yield that yield mm. this doesn't work. Mm. So what do you have to comment? Well, there's that? two things on that. The first is you're talking about serendipity. Uh, that is where you have an accidental happen chance where I make a stuff up, but actually it's an interesting stuff up that produces <laughs> an interesting line. Um, the problem is, is you get used to every week. Not, produce, not producing data. Is it this variable? Have I put filters across the air vents coming into my lab? You start becoming paranoid about absolutely everything to trying to get that data. So there's that. Um, you do become quite paranoid if you're not getting results that um, what is it this time? Because you think about there's, I mean, we talk in year seven about all the control variables that we talk in year seven. I've got my independent variable, my dependent variable, control variable. You still do that in research. You still have all that. It's just there's control variables you don't know about. Have I, have I thought about all the control? Is it me breathing in the wrong place? <laughs> and literally some of the scales that we're using, the balances to measure mass in, in the rooms, are literally affected by atmospheric pressure. So someone walking in the room at the other end of the laboratory will affect the, the, the reading on your, your balance. It gets pretty darn so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's frustrating at times. Can I ask about some of the qualities that you might get within a team of scientists and whether you need a mixture of these qualities or whether there are particular qualities that are, that are valuable? So it strikes me that sometimes what I don't hear very much is the idea of being a visionary or creativity in science. Because in order to frame an experiment, someone must have had the idea yeah. that there's something in that. Yeah. So that's one quality that you might have. But also, do you need people that are just really good on the, the mechanics of setting things up, the actually making sure the team's all doing what they should be doing? Uh, what what, I th what I think kind it, of has I, value? In, in uh, universities, I don't think they construct teams like that. They basically, they advertise a place by person by person and they just advertise, uh, they put out there, look, we've got funding for a PhD and what have you, or a research scientist in this, and they just choose the best person who comes along that fits that. I don't think they construct a team, but you're right. So you've got the visionary and then you've got the, the person who makes things work. So the visionary is really something that we don't educate in this country. We, we teach them stuff and you learn stuff about science and you learn that if I do A and it reacted with B, you get C and D. What you don't get as what discussed before is the lateral thinking where you get to make connections between, you know, I, I was reading papers in geography, making connections with geography and physics and that kind of stuff when you start having this vision where you start being able to assemble the dots. And this is one of the difficult things that, that you have as a research scientist is it's all new. You can't, you can't get yourself fixated on one particular paradigm. You've got to be able to hold lots of be able to possibilities in your head at one time. It could be A, it could be version A, paradigm A, B, C, D. All of them fit the data, and I've got to hold them all equally true in my head at the same time. That is not very easy. Oh. And as you start collecting more information, more data, whether it's from a research paper or from your your data, then you start narrowing down and sh what paradigm shifting, shifting your view across to something else, to another to another picture. The difficulty is, of course, is confirmation bias. I've sold my papers. I've done a load of papers that says paradigm A works. Therefore, 
I'm going to want to choose data that fits that paradigm. That's quite mm. difficult and dangerous to overcome. But yeah, so you've got the visionary, then you've got the person who makes things work. Now, when you're using kit that's at the cutting edge, um, I was using what's known as a cell fl uh, flow cytometer, which measures cells, basically, and measures and labels cells. It was made by a company in Germany, and if it went wrong, they'd have to fly someone out from Germany to fix it. Wow. You can imagine my professor didn't really like that very much. <laughs> so you have to become the engineer. You have to become the person who fixes it, who calibrates it. So the odd occasion where the engineer did come out, I was hovering over his shoulder. I was like, well, what are you doing there? Mm -hmm. Just so that I can learn, so we don't have to call him out next time. And he was perfectly happy with that. He didn't want to be called out to London during the week. He was quite happy not to. So you have to be able to fix all the kit and mend all the kit that, that you that you use, uh, which is um, well, it's interesting, actually. I quite enjoyed it in the end, but it was frustrating and difficult to begin with. Mm. So, yeah, making things work, and then you're helping colleagues in the lab who aren't doing it's not a team it's very difficult because i've got my line of research a colleague b has got their line of research and it will be related but it won't be the same i want my research to work and if their research works as well that's great but i want my research to work so is it more competitive or more collegiate um neither <laughs> i think it's a bit of both i would like my research to work more than the person next to me mm. but if they're having a difficulty with a particular assay then i'll help them mm. because it's their success will neither in, will not really impact the success of my research necessarily. So you're kind of a load of people who are getting on together and rubbing along and, and I've got my bench and they've got their bench and we're doing our work and we're using similar kit and we're working with the same professor so therefore under the same, working in the same field but mm. we've all got our own lines of research. We all want our own pen names on, on the papers basically. <laughs> Perhaps this is too gossipy a question, but have you ever had a big fallout with any of you? Have somebody ever interfered with your experiment or anything? Along interfered those lines? with my experiment. I've had fallouts with uh, other scientists. Yeah, um, there was one particular person that I just didn't get on with. But yeah, uh, interfered? No, I can't. People might be finding maybe this. That's why those experiments didn't work. <laughs> no, no idea, really. Um, not that I can think of. Um, I think because it's um, you can choose to interact as much or as little as you wanted. So if you wanted to work side by side, the colleague I talked to earlier about with the surgeon, I got on very well with her and we worked really well together and that was a good team. And if we hadn't gotten very well, maybe we wouldn't have collaborated so much. But someone else I didn't really get on with, then I, you just choose your own section of the lab and your other end of the lab and you just work separately. And you can even choose your own times. So that we had core time, which we had to be in, which is sort of 10 till 2. But beyond that, as long as the research got done, I came in really early and go home at 2 or come in at 10 and you go home at 10 o'clock at night or whenever it is. So you can choose your times, your location, the lamps to be different. I like that the Ask podcast is going a bit tabloid. Who didn't you get Sorry. on with? Who wrecked your experiment? <laughs> this is what we. This is what we need to boost listeners. I apologise for, for lowering the. <laughs> That's a good question. I thought it was well, it's all it's all human. I, I have to say, when I worked in pharmaceuticals, it is much more of a deliberate team. You will have that role within the team, and they will have that role, and you'll calibrate the machine for them. And it, it is much more deliberately a team to a particular end. Could I ask about the teams? Because earlier you mentioned how research is usually individual and you focus on your own work and get it done with, but also mentioned working in teams, how you have the visionary. Uh, what would you say a typical size is for a research group? Uh, oh, crikey, you know, how long is a piece of strip? I think all this is my experience, you know, the, what I experienced in labs. Um, how many people in my research group? Eight or ten uh, people working side by side um, within the same laboratory. Quite a large lab that we had. 
Um, it depends. Some groups are quite small, three or four. There were some people that we used to joke at when you see their papers, they would have 20 or 30 people names on the, on the, on the papers. And you could almost see this university industrially trying to pump out papers. Um, and therefore they were just throwing bodies and money and people at the research in order to be able to generate data quickly. And, you know, all those things that you see about, you know, the Watson and Crick, you know, the race and people being the first to publish the structure of DNA. Mm. There is a little bit of that because if you are first person, you get the higher rating um, paper in the higher rating journal. So you get more, so it's more impact and more people read your paper. If you're the second or third person, it really is a lot less. Uh, the, the, <laughs> I'll come back to Andres's point. Um, the idea, or maybe it was Mr. Till's viewpoint, the idea that negative data or the data that didn't work there was an article that was in The Economist quite a long time ago, which is, and I think may have been a new scientist as well, that focused on uh, the importance of people publishing data that had already been done. So if you're the first research group to publish, ah, we've the structure of DNA, mm. what's really important is that another group checks that. Now, the problem is these days, if you're the group that is second or third checking someone else's data, it takes time and money to do that. And the, what you publish out of that is, yeah, they were right, and you're paper you're publishing in is one that nobody ever reads mm. so it doesn't really help you along in terms of attracting funding but as the economist i think new scientist i can't remember which one it was certain point that's a really important part of science that someone actually checks your work is this actually real or are they just making you can make it up the structure didn't oh, quite a double helix that looks quite nice quite, i draw that that's excellent stuff so it's quite important that people check that and mm. um, that's an important part of science which i there has been some chat about it but I, I still think there's a f structural problem whereby if you're the second or third or you're the, you're the research group checking someone else's research, mm -hmm. you don't get as high impact or as much value for that as you possibly should. And therefore, it's degrading that important role. What about the role of, so this is me trying to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. What about the role of meta-studies? My understanding from my brother who knows about this kind of thing. Is that an area that you... Meta-analyses, yeah. Um, we use it a lot in teaching simply because... One of the big problems in doing any sort of research is those who do statistics for, for maths is we talk about n numbers. How many how many data points are you putting into the research, into into the statistics? We use confidence. So we you're trying to put in is is the effect I'm seeing real? So I pump in all my numbers into the statistics and it pumps out saying yes, we have ninety five percent confidence mm. that, that what you're seeing is real. The bigger your n number, the bigger the number of your data points you're putting in, the more confidence and the easier it is to get that confidence. Mm. Typically, we used to use a minimum number of six. So I once worried about this and went to see a statistician at UCI. I said, you know, I'm, I'm really worried that we're not using this correct statistical package. And um, so I went to go and I chatted to them about what should we should be doing. He goes, well, you need an n number of at least a thousand. Yeah. Well, I've got six <laughs> and, and I can't really do a thousand. So it wasn't very helpful. So, um, yeah, so... What was the point question? Oh, asked? I asked about meta studies. Or so meta, -analyses. meta studies. So the point of meta analyses is you can get that n number. Mm. Uh, the problem with it is you've got such a large n number, it's easier to get the confidence, statistical confidence that something is true. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with all sorts of strange things pop out of it. So mm -hmm. you could end up with things like, yes, it is statistically significant that people who live at above an altitude of 500 meters do prefer carb <laughs> when, when, on their Friday dinner. You know, odd things. That is that is the slight problem with it. But I think that you know there's a there's a big big role for it. Mm. We never played with it much in our research, I think, because I mean you do use it when you're doing clinical analyses, and I imagine they're doing lots of meta analyses when you're doing um, the COVID research because you've got those big numbers of thirty thousand, sixty thousand, a hundred thousand. You can get a lot of data out of it. But on the level I was working at had an end number of six. Wow. <laughs> no. <laughs>
Um, yeah, I mean, at university, we did a lot of discussion around meta-analysis and I mean, we always got shouted at correlation doesn't equal causation. So right. I think the idea is, is what you're trying to look for and what you're trying to get out of them. But a lot mm. of what we were told about is meta-analysis is helpful at some times, but a lot of science, although it feels quite established, it is quite in its infancy and it is in quite in its baby point. So I come from psychology, of, of which is currently in crisis. There is a replication crisis going on, what they're calling it, of what we thought was classic and, and sort of empirical literature, we now can't replicate in the modern day and sort of the, the ground beneath us is falling out. So it, I think I, I, your point on this will be really interesting, but there's a time of which to look at the past and to replicate, but there's also a time of which I think to sort of move on and, and, yeah. and to try and drive something forward. Oh, yeah, I'm, I used to teach something called theory of knowledge. I don't really know this uh, in the, for the IB. And it's how do you know what you know? Mm. And you can go, but why? And how do you know that? How do you know you're sat in a red chair? And those sorts of things, which really people first sit there in lower sits go, good grief, because it's red and I'm sat on it. (laughs) But it's that, and then you start getting into what the stimulus and the inputs are and the causation, everything else like that. Mm. So the point come to is, is you end up breaking down, breaking down, breaking down. So you end up questioning absolutely everything, which is fine. But then you've got to be able to build it back up again and go, well, look, I just have to take it for granted I'm sat in a red chair. Yes, okay, my inputs could be wrong and what Andres is looking at, I'm, it could be what I would view as blue. If I was plugged into his eyeballs, it would be blue. <laughs> but I just have to accept that we all agree that it's red and let's get on with ourselves, get mm. on with our lives, you know. So um, you're right. I think it's the deconstruction is, I think, is necessary, provided it comes to reconstruction thereafter. And then you're holding in your head, the fact I'm sat in this chair is a hypothesis and a working hypothesis, but I'm going to work with it as, yeah. the, as though it's true. Take like a gamble most of the time. Yeah, and, but I'm willing to be corrected if new data comes in and I look down again and I see that it's blue. Can I ask quite a school-based question yeah. about A-level choices? Yes. Ooh. So we always somewhat lament, regret, wish it were otherwise, that so many students who achieve top grades uh, in, in English and perhaps in a range of subjects, um, they've decided that they want to pursue a scientific course and so they go three science A-levels, or maybe two sciences and maths. Um, Do you think there'd be an advantage, even if someone were to go on and want a scientific career, for having another subject that gives them perhaps something at A-level that is a little bit broader? I don't just mean English literature, though, (laughs) spoiler alert, I do slightly, (laughs) but uh, a language, a something, because out in the real world, they'll be working across countries, they might have to read papers where little language differences matter. Um, does someone with something a little bit different actually have an advantage over someone that's done your two sciences and maths and that's what everyone else has done? Well, I should put the qualifier in, but for the sake of uh, Mr. Folks, Ms. Fenn and uh, Mr. Dunn, uh, no, do three sciences. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that bit out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said for it. I think, you know... It's not the fact that you're doing a language or the fact that you're doing English or the fact that you're doing music, I think. And it's it's the benefit I get from doing English and that the English itself will pay into a future career. I think it's the slight alteration in your mindset and thought processes that really, really matters. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we often find that those who are strong at maths are very good at their A-level sciences. And it's not because you need the maths. Mm-hmm. And because you, I mean, you did A-level chemistry, the maths in A-level chemistry really is not particularly complex at all. No. I mean, it's year seven, year eight level, not very difficult at all. So it's not the maths itself. It's the thought process of being able to solve problems and the logic behind that. So, yes, being able to do English and critically analyse things. 
Uh, you often find um, medical courses, one at King's College, which often, I shouldn't put this on the podcast, should I, selling a particular course. But they specifically look for people who are going to do intercalated degrees in something else like business management or philosophy. Mm. And I think there were some universities who quite liked people doing RS along with chemistry and biology mm. when applying for medicine, as you, as you might imagine. So I, I think it's not necessarily the knowledge you get from doing English or another, uh, another language or another subject. I think it's really this slight alteration in mindset. And yeah, I think it is valuable to the world of science. If everyone did the same courses and ploughed the same furrow, you end up with very light-minded thinking. And really what you're looking for at the sharp end of the research end is lots of broad-minded thinking. People can think laterally across across curricula. Interesting. That was a brave question, sir, because that could have really gone quite <laughs> could definitely have, could against have, could us. Definitely have done. It seemed to come out all right. But no, do three sciences. <laughs> <laughs> Don't undo it. Don't undo it, sir. Doris. That's your clue. That's this week's clue. So have you just given us a politician's name now? Nadine Doris, or spelt differently? Doris is what I will say. And Can you spell it you for us, You can put sir? that D-O-R-I-S. Okay, so not that Nadine Doris then. Okay. And so we have we have two clues on the news cycle. A large prize awaits. Do email suggestions to what the connection might be. I've got it, sir. It's names of women. I win. <sighs> well, we're going to have to come up with a new... Okay, no, slightly, need to be slightly more specific. This is how good I am with clues. Not good is the, the short and long answer. <laughs> Right, back to what we're doing. You really interrupted our train of thought there, sir. I thought, well, I'm, I feel bamboozled. We've, uh, oh, I suppose, okay, fair enough. It is getting towards the end of lunchtime and some of us, naming no names, are teaching sick form in eight minutes' time. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that's me. So perhaps um, we better start rounding ourselves off. It's been so fascinating. I feel like I've learned a great deal and I, I feel that I, you know, we're in elevated company here. <laughs> Well, hopefully these conversations will continue long after the podcast has ended. But uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm back in. Uh, you, yeah, I'm still trying to get my train of thought together. I need to do thank yous. That's what I need to do, don't I? Um, thank you to everyone today. Thank you to our fantastic guest, um, Dr. Bullard, for sharing such fascinating insights into the world that he's come from, the world that he's part of, and linking that in for, for A-level and so on, giving us glimpses of future careers. Thank you to our brilliant panellists for your really perceptive questions and thoughts on the questions as well, adding some of your own perspectives and so on. That was brilliant. Of course, thank you to our brilliant production crew and all the work they do setting this up and and figuring out what microphones. They talk about dynamics again. Another thing I know nothing about, but it sounds wonderful. Heroes to a man. Yeah, and you can probably (laughs) tell the difference in uh, sound between when I try and edit it and when they try and edit it. Um, quite yeah, vastly but um, also make sure you subscribe um, on YouTube it's Jenny Summers with an I um, lovely to see lots more people coming in uh, every time we're on Apple of course we're on Amazon you know we're on all the available places that you can you can find podcasts um, and, and just give us a shout out to other people I, I am starting to hear more people saying you know oh I'm listening to this I've listened to all these episodes yeah. you know, listen back to our back catalogue we have a back catalogue now you know, it's, you know, so and we've got a range of different types of episodes as well. We've got a live debate from last week. So you tell your friends, tell your enemies. Yes. Tell your frenemies. There's so many options. Tell everybody. Everybody <laughs> should know. We should be famous by the end of the day. But yeah, no. So thank you for everything. Um, hopefully we will be back very soon with another episode of the Ask Podcast, and we hope you've attained plenty of secret knowledge today. Um, thank you very much, and au revoir. <laughs>